RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Eagle Moss, Hero Collector, and their collection of exclusive Star Trek visual reference books and other great titles and gifts waiting for you at shop.eaglemoss.com slash US slash mission. Use promo code mission at checkout for 20% off all books and graphic novels. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 363, nor the battle to the strong. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at every episode of Star Trek, in order and by season, diving deep to find the morals, meanings, and messages contained within. And in this particular episode, there are plenty. This week, nor the battle to the strong, where Jake Sisko struggles with coming to terms from perhaps one of the most defining moments of his life. But before we delve deeply into this incredibly powerful episode, we'd like to let you know how you can always stay in touch with us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, for a plethora of information which is far more entertaining than listening to Dr. Bashir's medical jargon, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. I don't know about that, Norman. You kind of set me up. It, it may not be, but <laughs> but bear with me. So trivia for this week's episode, Nor the Battle to the Strong. We have a story by Bryce R. Parker, uh, who, by the way, is name-checked. Uh, his first name, Bryce, does appear in the script. Uh, and that is a new name for us. Uh, Bryce only has two professional writing credits, this one plus a short he wrote in 2009, He's no stranger to Hollywood, though. He's been kicking around since the 90s behind the scenes as an editor and primarily as a visual effects producer. He worked on Batman and Robin, the Matrix sequels, even Halle Berry's 2004 Catwoman. But don't worry, he made up for it by also working on Joker in 2019. The teleplay is by Rene Echeverria. Of course, we all know Rene well by now, and his story of going from spec script writer to staff writer to producer. On DS9, the most recent script of his that we discussed was season four's The Muse, on which he shared a story credit with Majel Barrett Roddenberry. This was directed by Kim Friedman, and we just talked about Kim not too long ago, mentioning her long association with sitcoms and dramas. She directed The Ship, and she has just one more DS9 episode to go before we catch up with her again on Voyager. Now, you know that I love location shooting. Here we have Bashir and Jake walking right out of the Batcave, 
Well, that little bit of location shooting is Bronson Canyon in L.A., right up in Griffith Park. Uh, That is a very short drive from the studio and just honestly one of the most frequently used TV and film locations ever. Let's talk about guest stars. We have a few unnamed characters who actually have pretty major roles to play in the story. There's the nurse, played by Lisa Lord. You may have caught Lisa in guest roles on ER or JAG or in her long recurring role on the soap opera Port Charles. This is her only Trek appearance. There's a Bolian with a sense of gallows humor. He's not a barber, and he's played by Mark Holton. He may not be a household name, but he is a very recognizable actor from his multiple TV and feature film appearances. Now, if you're having trouble picturing him, uh, just think about the opening of Pee-wee's Big Adventure when Pee-wee sees his neighbor, Francis. That's Mark, and this is his only Trek appearance. We also have an ensign who has injured himself and left an impression on Jake. He was played by Jeb Brown, who, like a lot of DS9 actors, regularly transitions from film and TV to live theater. On screen, though, you may have caught him in the feature film The Namesake, or in guest roles on TV, or even as a voice actor in the Star Wars The Old Republic video game. The dying Starfleet officer, Burke, is played by Danny Goldring. Now, Danny is a prolific character actor who got his start in TV in the mid-70s. We've seen him once before under some heavy Cardassian makeup when he played Legate Kell in DS9 Season 3 episode Civil Defense. We won't see him on DS9 anymore, but we will see him in a few characters on both Voyager and Enterprise. Jake befriends a young orderly named Kirby, played by Andrew Kovovit. His first professional gig turned into a long-running stint on As the World Turns. Then he pops up in many other well-known series as a guest, Married with Children, NYPD Blue, and then he starred as David Cassidy in the David Cassidy Story TV movie. And finally, Karen Austin appears here as Dr. Calandra. Karen has had a long and very busy career as an actor. She co-starred with John Candy in 1985's Summer Rental, and just a year before that, she was the co-star and potential romantic foil for Harry Anderson in the first season of Night Court. Many, many TV and feature roles followed, and she may be recognizable specifically to genre audiences for appearing on Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica in a guest role, as well as on Sliders and the 1980s version of The Twilight Zone. We will catch her one more time in an episode of Voyager. John, I have one small question for you about sure. the, the, the shooting location in Bronson Canyon. Yeah. When Dr. Bashir and Jake were running out of the cave, were you expecting them to say, Atomic batteries to power, turbines, turbines to speed. speed. <laughs> yes, always, always I am expecting that. We now go live to Norman, our man on the front lines, for this special report. Prologue. 
Returning home from a medical conference, Jake is in the midst of interviewing Dr. Bashir. Sort of. That is, if listening to Julian drone on and on, as he is wont to do, about his controversial medical paper is what Jake had in mind when he agreed to take on this, his first and hopefully not last, writing assignment. Engaged in his own internal monologue about how he had hoped to have written a far more scintillating paper, Jake is yearning for something more relatable for his readers. Saved by the proverbial communications chirp, Jake's interview is cut short as Dr. Bashir informs him that a nearby Federation colony on Agilon Prime is under attack by the Klingons, and the hospital is dangerously close to the front lines, too close for Julian's comfort and for Jake's safety. Ever the intrepid writer, Jake convinces Bashir to set course for the colony and not to worry. After all, as Jake confidently proclaims, he's a Cisco and can take care of himself. Act 1. In Ops, the command staff watches patiently as Major Kira's faith is truly put to the test, sipping what turns out to be Quark's experimental decaffeinated Ractogeno, or rather quark as Odo coins it, and Kira's expression upon tasting it, well, at least she wasn't poisoned. It turns out that Chief O'Brien is hoping to wean the Major off of caffeine since she is carrying his child, and just as Quark tries to get in a last word about Ferengi pregnancies being considered rentals, Captain Sisko emerges from his office with a grim expression as he informs his crew that Dr. Bashir has taken Jake to Agilon Prime. Dax tries to lighten Sisko's mood with a comment that he only has a few days to rifle through Jake's things, but it is clear that the captain is gravely concerned about his son being exposed to the horrors of war. Upon reaching Agilon Prime, Dr. Bashir explains to Jake that he must land the runabout to avoid orbital detection, and that the hospital has been destroyed, forcing the colonists to seek shelter underground, making it impossible to use the transporters. Knowing that Dr. Bashir is still unsure about bringing him to this war zone, Jake reassures him that he'll be all right. As they set foot into the makeshift triage center, Dr. Bashir immediately goes to work and advises Jake to just stay out of the way. Jake is visibly shaken by the chaotic and visceral horrors of the wounded colonists surrounding him. As Jake tries to do what he can to help a dying soldier propped up against a pylon, another wounded soldier bursts in, screaming for help and suffering from Klingon disruptor wounds to his foot. Dr. Bashir's examination sees it differently, as these wounds are consistent with burns from a Starfleet phaser. As Bashir tends to the other wounded, the young soldier confesses to Jake that he did in fact shoot himself to escape the Klingon terror on the front lines. Leaving the injured man to his shame, Jake tries to focus and write down whatever he can, only to be immediately pulled back into the fray as a medic has him watch over another severely wounded soldier who grips Jake's shirt in desperation, smearing blood across Jake's chest. Act 2 Jake has exchanged his civilian attire for medical scrubs and found purpose inside the hospital either ferrying the wounded to recovery or the deceased to the morgue. However, as preoccupied as he tries to be, he cannot help but take notice of the sheer amount of bodies that have been stacked up in the morgue, bodies that he has been placing in body bags and delivering all day. Back on Deep Space Nine, Captain Sisko sits with Odo to hear about an altercation that resulted in Odo's wounded pride. Odo's changeling instincts die hard as he injured himself trying to apprehend Dabo scam artists. Amidst their conversation about the fragility of human beings, Odo knows that Sisko is thinking about Jake. 
Cisco tells Odo how he has sworn to protect Jake no matter what, but feels helpless because Jake is now beyond that protection in a war zone. As Odo tries to understand Cisco's finer points of parenthood, Dax suddenly enters and informs the captain that the USS Farragut has been destroyed en route to the colony. With no hope of reinforcements to save the colonists, Dr. Bashir, and especially Jake, Cisco and Dax prepare the Defiant for immediate departure. In the hospital's mess hall, Jake experiences left him uneasy as he is unable to hold down the one meal he's had since he arrived. Dr. Bashir's surgical humor during mealtime has a way of doing that. Finding some privacy in a nearby tunnel, Jake asks Bashir about the ensign who shot himself as he struggles to make sense of why a battle-trained and psych-tested Starfleet soldier would do such a thing. Bashir simply replies that there is no simulation that will ever prepare someone for the real thing. Jake returns to the mess hall, and Dr. Bashir checks in on a few of his surgical patients. Dr. Calandra worries for her husband, who serves on the USS Tecumseh, which is assigned to the counterattack of the Arcanus Sector. But that ship is in good hands under the command of Captain Raymond, a veteran commander who survived the Cardassian Wars. Kirby, Jake's friend and fellow medic, shares a rumor with Jake about the Klingons intercepting the Farragut and that there is no hope for reinforcements now. Later, as Jake tries to get some much-needed rest, he is deep in thought about how this danger felt real, unlike anything he's ever experienced on the station where his father was able to protect him. Suddenly, explosions rock awake everyone in the barracks. The Klingons have knocked out power to the hospital, which Dr. Kalander was told will take three hours to restore. Knowing that these patients are dying in their beds, Jake and Dr. Bashir devise a plan to retrieve a portable generator from the runabout, but will have to take a route outside the colony's protective shields. As they race across the open terrain towards the runabout, they are bombarded by artillery fire. Blinded by smoke, surrounded by explosions, and unable to keep up with Dr. Bashir, Jake turns around and runs as fast as he can. Act 3 Running down a hillside thick with heavy foliage and smoke, Jake trips over a dead body, a dead Klingon body, one of several scattered across a field, both Klingon and Starfleet alike. Horrified once again, Jake runs further away from the carnage, falls into a nearby crater, and is struck by the butt end of a phaser rifle by a dying soldier who thought Jake was a Klingon. Through gritted, bloody teeth, this soldier demands from Jake to make sure he dies with his eyes facing the sky and not in the mud. Holding himself together both literally and figuratively, the soldier tells Jake that he is the last of his unit who he protected as they escaped the war zone in a hopper. Jake desperately tries to find some way to get the dying soldier back to the hospital, confessing to him all the while that saving his life is the only way to redeem himself for leaving Dr. Bashir and their mission. Jake admits his choice was a mistake, but the dying soldier calls it something else as he sputters his last few words. Terrified, Jake scrambles out of the crater and once again runs. Act 4 The Defiant races towards Agilon Prime at top speed. Captain Sisko, much to Dax's curiosity, has been spending a considerable amount of time working on the replicator pattern buffers as a way to distract him from worrying about Jake. Dax, trying to comfort her friend with a similar story of parental worry, tells Benjamin about her former host, Audrid, and how she spent two weeks worrying about her daughter, Nima, who was struck down with Rugalin fever. Audrid spent two weeks reading to Nima, just to stay preoccupied, because no matter the outcome or the distraction, parents will always worry about their children. The other takeaway from Dax's story, coffee can never be too hot. 
Jake finally returns to the medical compound and is reunited with Kirby, who tells him that Dr. Bashir is in fact alive and brought back the generator, but suffered severe plasma burns in the process. When Dr. Bashir sees Jake from his hospital bed in intensive care, he is beyond relieved, yet berates himself for putting Jake in harm's way, only exacerbating the roiling guilt, which is slowly eating away at Jake. In the silence of his bunk, Jake finally succumbs to the inevitable truth that he's been trying to convince himself from accepting, the truth of being a coward. Later, Jake delivers dinner to the ensign, who is now known throughout the hospital for his self-inflicted phaser wound. And as the ensign confesses about what he did and why he did it, Jake sympathizes with him and understands that all either of them wanted was the shelling to stop, and they would do anything to get away from the torment of the explosions. As the medical team enjoys a brief respite in the mess hall, they jokingly confess about how they would want to meet their demise at the hands of the Klingons. Their gallows humor drives Jake to lash out at them about the stupidity of all of this, the war, the death, and the fact that no one will even care about any of this in the years to come. Dr. Bashir takes Jake for a walk to calm him down to see what's really going on, but Jake dismisses him out of hand, and as soon as Bashir is far enough away, Jake slumps down the cave wall, breaks down, and cries. Act 5. After falling asleep in the tunnel, Jake once again is rocked awake from explosions. He runs to where the rest of the staff has congregated, and Dr. Calandra has ordered a full evacuation of the facility, meaning every patient, staff member, and any life-saving equipment that anyone can carry. In the chaos of the swirling retreat, Dr. Bashir is once again separated from Jake, who has taken cover from falling debris underneath a mess hall table. Jake summons up enough courage and races to the evacuation area as Klingon disruptor fire cuts down several Starfleet infantry who are protecting the escape route. Pinned down and in an act of blind panic, Jake grabs a nearby phaser rifle and begins firing wildly, collapsing the cave ceiling on top of the Klingon intruders and on himself. Shortly after the fighting ceases, Jake comes to and sees not only Dr. Bashir, but his father, both looking over him and making sure he was unharmed. It turns out that Jake's panic fire gave the medical team and patients enough time to reach safety. Bashir hails Jake as a hero, but deep down inside, there is another angle to that truth. Back in the safety of the station, Captain Sisko finishes reading Jake's personal account of experiences during the Battle of Agilon Prime, and how he learned that the line between courage and cowardice is a lot thinner than most people believe. Captain Sisko is proud of what Jake has written, because he tells Jake, it takes courage to look inside yourself, and even more courage to write it for other people to see. The end. Thank you, Norman. Uh, you know, one of the, the great unsolved mysteries of this episode is um, what journal hired an 18, 19-year-old kid to write a profile of Dr. Bashir? Who would want it? Who would read it? What I mean, who? What, what is the angle? The New England Journal of Snobby Doctors, or uh, <laughs> Saturday Evening Boar, or I mean, I I can't I can't imagine. Like he just thought to himself, oh, you know what? I'll pitch this, and some editor was like, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> let's take that. It's almost as if like the Pennington Institute. Was just like, yeah, give him whatever. Yeah. I don't care. Just get him off of our backs. Enough with the males already. It's it's somebody there is just like, yes. Say we have a journal. How's that? Sure, sure. It's do, it's do all you know digital who, um, anyway. 
Bashir reminded me a lot of, say, Sheldon Cooper, Dr. Sheldon Cooper yeah. from The Big Bang Theory. Yes. He was just so Bashir oh. about the way he kind of disdained the criticisms about his paper. Peak, peak Bashir. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I definitely have to side with uh, Quark here in his uh, attempts to make Quark to Gino. I firmly believe in the motto, death before decaf. Um, I just, I, I, I don't think you can. I say that as I have another sip of coffee. I'm surprised that he didn't shoot like Odo a glance like, oh, that's pretty good. I think I'll trademark that. Cork the Gino. He should have. He should have. He could have put that on his, uh, you know, musical uh, coffee mugs. <laughs> Um, down on that uh, planet, the, those were interesting med tech clothes. The the very first shot, they kind of have that light grayish color, and for a split second, they sort of resembled to me like a, a retro sci-fi thing, like almost inspired by the Forbidden Planet uniforms, that, that mm-hmm. kind of grayish, bluish gray looking. Um, and I would say that what they had was probably more practical than scrubs, not a lot of loose fabric. Um, they, they, they were cool and that's not something that i've uh, i don't think we've seen before maybe we have well you know not to make too much of a, a close comparison to babylon 5's costumes but mm-hmm. those looked very similar to the the medical uniforms in babylon 5 mm. and i think the reason why the the costume designers maybe went this route is because it really showed a lot of the kind of like the aftermath of the treatments and the aftermath of the triage and seeing the blood stains um which which, which reminds me of a point I wanted to make mm-hmm. is that when, when Jake was there and, and uh, Kirby calls him over to, to assist him with a dying soldier, mm-hmm. that soldier grabs Jake's shirt mm-hmm. in a very similar way that Peter Preston grabbed Kirk's uniform in ah. Wrath of Khan and left the same kind of handprint yeah. on Jake's tunic as, as Peter Preston did on Kirk's. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that was intentional or, or just it's one of those things that just sort of happens and... You know, you, you, that's a very iconic type of scene. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. There was an interesting little detail that uh, when he went into the morgue uh, and they saw the guy zipping up another body, that the the body had like an ankle cuff, like uh, some sort mm-hmm. of ID system that way. Um, so not a toe tag. Although I thought we, I, I meant to look it up. I, I thought we saw something more akin to that when Wesley is having that experience about seeing his father. It was more like a traditional toe tag kind of thing. I would think that by the time you get to Starfleet uh, with advanced medical technology, you probably have a microchip. You probably have, uh, oh, I don't know. Maybe they should come up with like risk communicators or something (laughs) that has their uh, biometrics. Um, But yeah, but that, that was a pretty hefty piece of hardware. And not to sound too uh, macabre or grisly about it, but mm-hmm. since they have been at war with the Klingons, and the Klingons use a lot of sharp weapons, it's very well possible that any of those microchips could have been sliced sure. from them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that scene, though, and I really wanted to make note of this. This is something that really kind of affected me when I was watching the episode. And I timestamped this for the listeners to watch this. At, at 12 minutes and 10 seconds, Jake walks into the morgue carrying another body with Kirby and the the camera kind of zooms in on him and really allows you to to settle in that moment of what Jake is seeing and you just see 
bodies upon bodies upon bags yeah. stacked yeah. in that morgue. And that's something that I'm going to discuss later on in the show of how that was very affecting when I saw it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That, that was uh, a strong scene. I have a question here about Bashir. Uh, has he already made friends with uh, the unnamed nurse uh, who, who we see? There, I mean, it's a good shot. It really is. So there, there's Bashir in the Bolian, uh, who is unnamed. and uh, But we can call him Francis, uh, because he is. And then uh, the nurse, and they're all leaning against that cave wall. And she's sort of got her, her head on his shoulder. And it, it's, a, it's a very friendly thing. There's a certain kind of like an implied intimacy to that. I just wondered like, wow, he, he's only been there a very short time and they've already gotten to know each other a little bit. Well, what's the old saying that uh, extreme circumstances or something of that mm. nature make strange bedfellows? Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get it. Yeah. And under under moments of duress or extreme emotional uh, moments, people tend to tend to bond. So. I think that scene probably would have played a little bit stronger towards what you're alluding to if the Bullion wasn't there and it was just those two. Yeah. 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 Hey, maybe the Bullion liked Bashir too. Maybe uh, maybe Bashir is just unaware. <laughs> this is the 24th century. It is. We are open to all. We are, we are uh, inclusionary to all. It is. It is. There's that one scene, well, a couple of scenes with Odo, but that, that moment that he's got with Cisco, where, uh, first of all, he's hurt himself and we learn that it's because he thought that he would just uh, uh, jump off the uh, staircase in Quarks and turn himself into some sort of bird to chase after these Eurydian uh, uh, con men. And mm -hmm. it, it, it's a good moment. I'm surprised that we didn't have a line like that before. Like, we're already right. a few episodes into season five, and I, I'm honestly surprised we didn't have something like this right off the bat, right after Odo's powers got taken away from him. It, there's like... There is a little bit of humor underlying this scene, uh, but it is just sort of tragic that, like, this is all he's ever known, and now he is a completely different being and has to deal with the limitations of that. I think I brought this question, this very same example up in, at the end of Broken Link, where I said, well, what's going to happen to Odo when he tries to use his powers and nothing happens? How's that going to affect him? And can we talk about the, uh, the mental... Uh, type of uh, repercussions of that in Apocalypse Rising where Odo felt like he wasn't worth anything anymore. Yeah, right. Uh, until right. he was able to, you know, tap back into his his powers of deduction at the end when he revealed Martok. But now he actually tried to do it. And not only that, he heard himself doing it. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. oh, man, your right. human bodies suck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not wrong. <laughs> exactly. And everything you do is just, I know it's a segue into kind of like illustrating the fragility of, yeah. you know, of the human body and, and, and obviously, you know, Cisco's monologue about that. Yeah. But yeah, I, I was, I was, um, I'm glad to see that they showed a scene where, where Odo's, you know, he has his diehard instincts and those instincts took over and he's going to have to deal with that now. Yeah. 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 Um, we got a mention of the Farragut. Uh, yeah, I didn't mention the ship names, but uh, we have the Farragut, which is a long, long uh, uh, traditional name of ships. And then uh, the Tecumseh, of course. Um, but the, the Klingons, we mentioned the Farragut. And they, yeah, it'll be there in a you know a couple of days. And then the Klingons destroy it, 
which is uh, tragic because they just took out a starship. But, however, if there is a silver lining here, it was near the Lombada cluster. So I'm hoping that that crew got in one last round of the Forbidden Dance before oh, they met their end. Oh, John, you yeah. went there. I did. I you did. You went there. That is immediately yeah. what popped into my head when Dax said it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, another place I'll go is that this is not a food episode, uh, but there is a shot in the mess hall for the doctors and definitely a salad uh, on one plate or, or in a bowl. Rather, I believe the nurse is having that. And I'm just going to deem that as a Caesar salad, uh, which, remember, is from Baja, not from Italy. And uh, it looks like Bashir was about to get into some chicken with rice before Jake uh, lost his appetite, made a made a hasty exit. I mean, I know it was played uh, for effect, but I actually mm. thought it was kind of funny when he says, I'm just going to make this incision here right across yeah. the thigh. Yeah. I mean, that's what a doctor would do, <laughs> well, you know, exactly. unknowingly. That's very reflexive. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Now, in, in, in kind of like the spirit of another food-type item, I actually thought this was a really nice little scene. It, it lasted very briefly, but it's when, when Jake rolled into the crater with Chief Burke. And this man is literally holding himself together in pieces. Yeah. But he gives Jake his water ration. Yeah. Because Jake is a civilian that he has sworn to protect. Right. That, to me, just spoke volumes of what Jake is experiencing, what he's going through, and how this man, in his last dying moments, still acted heroically to protect somebody else's life. Yeah. You know, you, you make a good point that there are, within each good scene, there are also many great moments um, that they, they really mine the best material out of uh, so many scenes here. And, and I'll just say, uh, kind of to wrap it up, that in an episode full of these good moments, one that really struck me was the scene with Cisco and Dax on the Defiant, because it was almost a throwaway. Like, what we get out of it is Ben's concern about his son, and Dax just trying to kind of talk him through it. But but they made it count on even more levels, uh, and I just think that they continue to get such great work out of Terry Farrell. They're, they're just finding, it's almost like they remind each other uh, every week of this show, hey, Dax has got this incredibly rich history and these incredible layers to that character, so we can rely on Dax to provide so much more insight into every bit of dialogue yeah it's as if they don't need to film flashbacks because dax's narrative throughout the course of all of her hosts experiences are those flashbacks to make those connective moments did jake earn the red badge of courage john and norman are back with the after action briefing We'll get back to the show in a moment, but first, a word from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. So, Mission Log listeners are undoubtedly familiar, John, with all the various collections of model starships, like, collected and studied and gleaned from every corner of the Star Trek universe by Eagle Moss Hero Collector. I know I have shelves <laughs> of you and me them, both. Occupying, them. Yes. <laughs> occupying all of my walls. <laughs> and but, but here's the thing. It's like, they may know all of the official starships, but they may not know 
about how wide and ever expanding the variety is of the officially authorized special edition of books. Whoa. Whoa. Yes, books. B O O K S <laughs> books by Eagle Moss and available only online at the Eagle Moss shop. So if you pay a visit to the exclusive Star Trek bookshop at shop.eaglemoss.com slash US slash mission, you'll discover a range of definitive visual guides that go deep into the Star Trek history and canon as any books ever published. Each extensively researched and developed by Eagle Moss Hero Collector under the supervision of Star Trek expert Ben Robinson. And, uh, ben is one of my favorite Star Trek experts. I'll just get that out of the way right away. That, that is my bias toward Ben. Um, you know, Norman, I, I'm sure that you were like me as a kid. You had that Franz Joseph technical manual. You just poured over every page and you thought, well, it can't get any better than this. Now, this is not to diss those amazing technical manuals of the 70s. But these just go like such a step beyond. They are so well produced. I was thumbing through some today. Uh, you have the Shipyards collections, which present a timeline of literally almost every ship that has ever appeared in Star Trek TV shows and movies. Original series up to Discovery, or if you want to go backward, go back to Enterprise. Um, some of these volumes are dedicated exclusively to Starfleet ships, while others focus on, well, other members of the Federation, like Vulcans, Andorians, Tellarites, Bajorans. What I love is you discover so much. It'll take you through different eras, like of the Enterprise, and focus in on, on very specific details, like uh, from different times, maybe different bridge configurations, layout. There's just so much in-depth story that they give you. Um, so those books definitely go where few have gone before, deep behind the scenes of conception, development, and detail of the ships from every era. And look, it doesn't just stop there. There are graphic novels collections. I was also reading through the original City on the Edge of Forever, which then was illustrated, probably my favorite illustration of a Star Trek graphic novel is uh, how they handled that. And I love the way that Eagle Moss packages it, where you'll have a hardbound copy along with supplemental material. In that case, they happen to bind it along with uh, a reproduction of one of those original gold key comics. It really is mm -hmm. just perfect for a collector like me, and it looks great on a shelf. You know, a lot of us want to collect, especially those of us of a certain age, we want to collect some of the comics that we've lost mm -hmm. or that have been uh, mistreated <laughs> in some way or another. Yes. Right? My target ate my, my comic book. So you get these in pristine collector's formats. They're fantastic, and they have so many different varieties for every Star Trek fan of every generation to choose from. Plus, especially for listeners of Mission Log, use code MISSION at checkout and receive 20% off all books and graphic novels. So browse around the shop and please visit shop.eaglemoss.com slash us slash mission and use promo code mission at checkout for your 20% discount. So uh, we mentioned earlier kind of uh, uh, peak Bashir. You know, he, here he is in his element able to uh, talk to a young man who's writing an article. He's like, oh, well, this is just going to feed into the ego uh, like we've never seen before. Um but I feel like this episode on its own is sort of like, uh, it's almost like a little recap of Bashir's arc so far. Because, I mean, you think about it, that first three seasons, he, he's really, he is an annoying boor who just loves the sound of his own voice. 
Um, but then the better that we get to know him, the more we are amazed by his skill and more importantly, his compassion. Now, he still mm -hmm. does boneheaded things like talking to O'Brien about seeing the major coming out of a bathtub. Please, please, Bashir, do not. You won't do let that, that go. I will won't. You? I won't. That's horrible. <laughs> um, but we we see him in this episode from the opening, being this uh, the, this you know the annoying boar. But then we sort of get to see him through Jake's eyes, immediately go into professional mode, and also have this incredible display of compassion and empathy. It, it's. It's really great to see. I think that for Jake, and maybe for us too, is that Jake is probably seeing Dr. Bashir, like truly seeing Dr. Bashir for the first time. Mm -hmm. He probably has yeah. this, uh, you know, he has this uh, expectation of, oh, yeah, you know, Dr. Bashir, we went to a medical conference. He was super boring there. He's super boring in the runabout. But all of a sudden... Because of this uh, distress call and knowing that the Klingons are attacking Agilon Prime, Dr. Bashir goes into Starfleet hero mode. Yeah. Where he puts aside his, the pretense of him being this, you know, this boorish you know, intellectual, as you say, yeah. and turns into a Starfleet officer. And I don't think that Jake has seen that kind of a turn in Bashir's character before. Yeah. And it's nice to see here, too, because now the Doctor kind of like compartmentalizes himself and not only is he worried about the colonists, but he's also worried about Jake. He's like, do I do this and, and honor the Hippocratic Oath and, and uh, administer assistance when required? Or do I protect Jake right. because he's my superior officer and friend's son? Yeah. You know, this is not in our notes, but you just made me think of something. Um, your dad was a doctor. My dad was mm -hmm. a doctor. And that gives us a certain kind of access to the, the the person behind the job, you know. And I wonder if for a lot of people who don't have that access to the, the people who are in that role, there's a kind of uh, detachment or distance where, you know, it, it seems like, okay, well, well, doctors have to be smart. They have to have studied hard. They have to know their profession. They have to stay on top of the science behind their profession. But then there's sort of like a, um, there's sort of a coldness to that when, when you're not on the inside. You just see like, okay, these are people who went to school for a long time, who got good at their profession, who, uh, who who have to continually study and then have to make these difficult and complex decisions. But what you don't see from the outside is the actual humanity and compassion there and how um, how challenging making those decisions can actually be, that there is actually a human toll there and that there are um, emotional decisions behind what's happening and those decisions stay with them doctors yeah. just don't you know as kurt says they don't wave their pain away with a magic wand right they're there right they will always be there and doctors have to compartmentalize so many things they have to their the uh, the emotional balance of their family and their personal life with their professional life with that you know the the ability to turn on that switch of kind of like the cold calculating detached way of approaching saving lives yeah yeah 
Well, let's talk about some of the themes here in this episode. I, I think there, there's a lot to uh, figure out and explore, and we, we probably won't hit it all, so I'm sure that our listeners will be able to chime in on what they got out of it as well. But I, I think there are themes that I want to dig into. Um, first of all, this theme of growing up. The, this maturity that is um, happening anyway, but then it is forced and accelerated because of the circumstance. So clearly we have Jake who is faced with this very harsh reality. Yes, he's been on the station when it's been attacked. Yes, his life has been in danger before, but this is a different kind of that. This is a different type where he actually has to be in the battlefield surrounded by people who are making life and death decisions every instant. Uh, so he's got to absorb that. Then you've got Benjamin, who is faced with the danger that his son is in. And this makes Benjamin think, well, now my relationship is different here. Yes, I want to be able to protect my son at all times, but now I have to grapple with the idea that I can't. That is just not physically possible, certainly in this instance and going forward. And then you've got Odo, who is physically hurt for the first time. And I thought that scene, which, you know, again, there's a, a very light undercurrent of humor to it, but it's also serious that he's been hurt and he's got to deal with this. But this is a, a type of growing up for him to accept the reality of where he is. And, and you can't do the things that you used to do. Um, and it's just a nice little exchange that Odo has with uh, Captain Sisko. Does your father still worry about you all the time? And here's, you know, yeah. Benjamin Sisko, this mature adult with a son of his own, but he knows that his father, however many light years away, still sees him as a little boy. And uh, and I think that's something I know I can relate to. I, I I get it where Ben's head is thinking about this. Yeah, that's a lovely scene. And, and what you're talking about here really kind of sets up a lot of the, the building blocks of this episode where we're, we're coming to terms with characters who are, are being forced into accepting certain limitations in their lives, limitations that they never thought they would have ever had to embrace before. And as the episode goes on and as our talking points evolve here, mm -hmm. we'll see how that really kind of either enlightens them or eats away at them. Yeah. And it could easily eat away at, at, at Odo, but I don't think he's going to let it. I can't really say the same for Jake. Yeah. Then, of course, we have the harsh reality of, of war. And uh, Bashir says, you know, simulations can't prepare you for the real thing. And um, Jake, it, it, Jake, in this scene, he says, some people say that you don't know what you're really made of until you've been in battle, to which Bashir says, well, let me tell you, Jake, there are many situations in life which test a person's character. And thankfully, most of them don't involve death and destruction. Thank goodness there's that line there. I, I feel like that is that is an overall like overarching theme and concern for this episode is that we, we tend to put this incredible weight and almost reverence on the idea that war makes people strong. And uh, 
this episode, I think, does a, a very nice job of trying to defuse and and correct that assumption, or or at least correct that as a trope. I'm glad that you referenced this because there could be almost kind of like a coda to what Bashir is saying here when he says, thankfully, most of them don't involve death and destruction, dot, 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 or bravery, dot, 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 mm-hmm. or cowardice, because that is exactly what is happening here. The test of a person's character results in a variety of different reactions. And for me, this is kind of like the central message of this episode is that, say, Jake is, is uh, he's experiencing things in his life that he's never experienced before, primarily because, as he said earlier, that his father was always protecting him. He was always on the station. He was far removed from any type of violence, even if violence was in the station. You know, he was always either behind security or behind a protective wall. But now he has to face the reality for himself. Yeah. And what will that do? And how will that prompt him to respond? And I feel that, you know, uh, when, when push comes to shove, there is no calculation for how a person is going to respond, no matter how much they are trained, yeah. no matter for better or worse, no matter how much they have been exposed to these situations for better or worse. And there is kind of um, a shaming that's going on here, too when it comes to these responses and very much like how I think the audience felt they had to almost mentally shame the character of Upham in saving private Ryan Mm. when at the point where he was needed most to distribute the ammunition to, you know, to his fellow unit when he cracked under pressure and folded and everyone's like, well, no, and he's a trained soldier. He should be able to, well, he's also a human being. Right. And human beings respond differently. And you just have to move with the way that those responses dictate that course of events. Yeah. Well, all right. So that's the perfect lead in then to what I think is another key theme of this episode, and that is honesty. And, and But it's the personal honesty here, particularly on display at the end, uh, that I think is just so powerful. So throughout the story, we've seen people respond to this extreme circumstance in different ways. So, of course, we have the young man who harmed himself in order to get out of battle, can't take what's going on. So he he thinks his only recourse is to harm himself in order to get out. We've had others who make jokes, and that's a, also a realistic reaction. The, the, that is somehow, uh, that that is how some people cope with an extreme circumstance. And we've had others who just focus on the job, just have to kind of put the blinders on in order to get the job done, in order to see the the next person. Jake has this good fortune to be able to look into himself and try to understand what made him act the way he did. And what Ben says at the end is just so, he, he puts the perfect button on it. Anyone who's been in battle would recognize himself in this, but most of us wouldn't care to admit it. It takes courage to look inside yourself and even more courage to write it for other people to see. I'm proud of you, mm-hmm. son. I, to me, that this episode that is already so full of powerful ideas does a great job through its dialogue of walking us through these ideas. And I, and I think that is 
it's perfect that it falls at the end. It's perfect that it's Ben saying this to his son, just saying, this is more important than anything. Your honesty with yourself is more important than anything. And it shows courage to be able to share it. That, that, that is the most difficult thing to do in an utter contrast to, again, that, that young man who shot himself with his phaser. The only thing that I think would have just sat better with me at the end of this episode was if... So Jake hugs his father at the end when his father compliments him on his bravery and heroism of writing this. And then you see a shot where you see Jake smile and kind of like, you know, everything's going to be okay. But I know that as a character, he's not going to be okay because of what he went through and the torment that he had to accept throughout the course of those events. Yeah. So I wish in some way that smile kind of faded into something else, knowing that I'm never going to be the same from this experience. I, yeah, I, I kind of thought the same thing because the, this, for a show like Deep Space Nine where they're playing to the strength of doing these ongoing storylines and these ongoing uh, character threads, it felt a little too wrapped up at the end. Like, okay, now we can put this to bed. Like, no, 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 this is a profound moment. This is a profound turning point. And Jake's in a unique position. He's an adult, but he's a kid, <laughs> you know? Um, he is a civilian who just got caught in the crossfire. He's somebody who had to then be forced to see what this military life is like, quasi-military for these this particular slice of Starfleet here. These aren't things that will just go away because he got it off his chest. So, yeah, I, I, I think you... Fortunately, we can infer that uh, as something that carries on with this character. Uh, but I do feel like we needed a little something there to just sort of acknowledge, like, okay, the, this goes beyond just writing it down in a pad. Let's. I, I do want to talk a little bit more about this guy who um, who left such an impression on Jake because he had used his phaser to to get himself out of this battle. He says, I don't deserve to be in Starfleet. Therapy won't change what I did. I just wish I'd aim that phaser a little higher, meaning that he had killed himself. Mm -hmm. This is a sad, profound moment between Jake and and that ensign. We think he's an ensign. Um, it's one of those 24th century things, and and I don't want our audience to think that I'm just going to sit here and bag on DS9 or their version of how difficult the 24th century is. Jake suggests that his life isn't over, that he can get help, and that he can have a life back. But this guy's guilt and shame are just overwhelming. And he keeps saying, like, yeah, I'll, I, I'll go home, I'll get court-martialed, and then I just, I, I'm going to go work in a mine. Which we yeah. know from the original series is just where people end up. <laughs> They're just miners on asteroids and and little planets throughout the galaxy, and that's just what they do. But that makes me wonder. It 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 really makes me worried. What are the conditions like around him? What would reinforce to him that he should feel nothing but shame? Because I think, look, if we get to that point, 
in the 21st century, where we have resolved a lot of human issues, human problems, but we still realize that, well, sometimes we have to pick up a phaser. Sometimes we're going to be in incredibly difficult situations where our lives may be in danger and our best instincts may be challenged. That then are we still left thinking, well, if I get it wrong, then either I deserve to die or I deserve to be permanently shamed for my bad, and, and I put that in quotes because it's not just purely bad, but for, from his perspective, his bad reaction. This is probably the, the kind of like a turning point for me in how I see Star Trek or how I'm trying to accept Star Trek mm -hmm. in Deep Space Nine because we believe, uh, especially fans of the original series and Next Generation, we believe that Starfleet has all the answers, yeah. that every, every possible scenario has been mapped out. If someone is dealing with mental illness, then the, uh, there are facilities that will help them because we have the technology and we have the, the humanity and the compassion to do so and the ability to in this, the, the, the post-scarcity economical society of Starfleet. Yeah. We have the ability to rehabilitate our wounded and those who are suffering from post-traumatic stress. And this is why I felt that this particular Ensign's plight is something that hit very hard in this episode because he feels he has one of two ways of dealing with the situation, either by permanent shame and a black mark on his career or by disappearing into a, a profession that really only um, kind of like, only recruits from kind of like the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. People that have no possible way of redeeming themselves and just want to become invisible because of that shame. Yeah. Is this the 24th century that we should come to expect in this narrative? I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying that this is something that I'm trying to understand as this type of instance paints a far more grim and grittier reality of the future of humanity. Well, well, that's just it. Like, I, I, I can accept it and I, I want to accept the idea that our human emotions don't just go away. Things like shame and guilt and and second guessing and those have to come along because that's part of what makes us human. We can regret our actions. I guess the the question is then what happens next? Because just like O'Brien in Hard Time, like what got him to the point of thinking there is no better alternative for me. There's nowhere yeah. else to turn. And I know that we, we kind of talked that one to death, uh, not only in the episode, but then in the Q&A, and we got a lot of feedback from our listeners about it. It wasn't so much not being able to accept that something would be so traumatic that it could drive a person like O'Brien to this desperate place. It's a question of how have we not done better institutionally 
because like you just said, we look to Starfleet as this ideal of where we hope to go. That is the future that we want to build where our institutions do better for us than they do now. So it's painful to see people who feel like, well, they've just been left out to the point that death would be a better option in their minds, in their mind, and not not in reality, but but in their heads, they're at least entertaining this idea. So it's I don't mind seeing the character driven that far. I guess what I worry about is, again, what's not on screen here, what's not on the page here. What happens to that guy later? Where is right. his Deanna Troy to come in and say, now we have to work through this. And now we're going to rebuild you mentally because you're not a terrible person because you reacted in a human way to this extreme circumstance. I mean, it's very well possible that I mean that he's just I mean he's reacting to his circumstance at the time. I mean mm-hmm. he is very very trapped in kind of like the the pits of his own despair. Yeah. We know that counseling is there. We know because we've seen counselor Troy counsel uh you know Captain Picard after you know the the torture that he suffered at the hands of you know Golma Dread. Yeah. We know that there are counselors that would have helped um Chief O'Brien if Chief O'Brien was ready and willing to accept that help. So it's there. What I find interesting is that these these frontline soldiers feel that that's not an option for them for the the road to self healing mm-hmm. for the road to trying to piece themselves together and I think that's where I find this incredible distinction between again the the paragon of twenty fourth century humanity that is Starfleet versus what I think is what the writers are trying to or intending to do with Deep Space Nine and pulling back the veil of, yes, it's there, but humanity is still frail and vulnerable and susceptible to all different types of, uh, of personal degradation and the uh, evaluation of self-worth. And that kind of brings me up to what Jake is suffering in this episode, because Every single time he turns around, he's trying to measure himself up to somebody else's heroism and not trying to find the heroism of himself. Yeah. Right? When he sees Dr. Bashir stride into the hospital at the very beginning of the episode, Dr. Bashir is in full officer doctor mode. And Jake's like, what do I do? Where do I go? And Dr. Bashir's like, stand to the side. You'll be okay. And Jake's trying to do the best he can. Then he sees medics or med techs like Kirby doing what they do, showing that type of bravery and heroism and uh, detachment to try to get the job done. Then he sees examples after examples after examples, especially Chief Burke. Yeah. You know, who's literally like, again, holding himself together, but still worried about Jake's Mm well-being. So why is Jake or why does Jake feel that he has to measure his own ideal of heroism to other people who have been trained in different ways to react to become heroes? That is the question. <laughs> and and it, it's sort of like looking at this through our you know 20th century when it was made, 21st century as we're talking about it, our perspective now, we have to wonder what are the narratives that are implied or assumed about people who put themselves in these dangerous situations in the 24th century? What is the expectation that is laid out for them to say, here's how you react. 
here's what happens when you go to these places. Because Jake, Jake is absorbing all of this uh, and, and not, not sure uh, un- until the end here of what to take in. And e- even at the end, he's not 100% sure of anything other than just his own, his own experience, his own feeling about it. Like, wow, I saw the best of this. I saw the worst of this. I feel terrible about my own actions, but I have to get it out or else it will destroy me. I think a missed opportunity here, though, uh, especially with with the way that Jake is trying to grapple with his own version of heroism, is trying to measure up to maybe the expectations of Captain Sisko. He's seen his father time and again do the most heroic things with without uh, any reservation for his own safety or the safety um, of of the actions that he's you know f- for himself. Mm-hmm. And when he sees his father do that. That is Jake's ideal of being a hero. So when he's faced with similar situations, is that the reason why he feels that he can't hold a candle to even the the smallest fraction of his own father's heroism, something that his father, as an example, has set in front of him time and time again? Is that the reason why that Jake is is trying to own up to uh, not his own ideal of his own Heroic instincts? Yeah, I, maybe. But I mean, that, that's a tough thing to live up to. MASH never had to deal with this many Klingons. Actually, I'm not sure MASH ever had to deal with any Klingons. Or maybe they just flew under the radar. Hey, something that we do from time to time here is we talk about the title. Um, we, we figure out where it came from, what it means. Some of them are very obvious. This one, maybe not so much. Uh, but it is, in fact, a, uh, a quotation from the Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happeneth to them all. Thoughts on that, Norman? Oh, I found that very applicable. As a matter of fact, that's probably the thing that I did first before I actually watched the episode because I wasn't familiar with that particular biblical passage. And it makes a lot of sense when it mm-hmm. when uh, overlaid on top of the episode, especially the, the very end of it. But time and chance happen, happeneth to them all, yes. which is essentially, you know, if uh, translated to the randomization of what will happen and how you will react to such randomizations. Yeah, yeah I, I, it's, a, it's a very interesting verse. I, I, I like it quite a lot, um, just saying that you can prepare as much as you want. You can have as much skill as you think you need, uh, but things don't always just play out the way you think they should or could because of that preparation or because of that particular ability or advantage that you may have. Time and chance will always play a role. Mm-hmm. Mike Tyson once said, I do believe it was Mike Tyson, he said that everyone approaches me with a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and then you have to deal with what comes next. From the book of Tyson, chapter 9, mm-hmm. verse 11. <laughs> Interesting, though. Nine eleven. Oh, That is strange. Yeah. Yeah, look at that. Mm. So let's talk about 
how this episode holds up for both of us before we talk about morals, meanings, messages, because uh, again, there there's a bit to uh, discuss here. And again, we probably are not hitting it all, but that's why we do our thing. And then we leave it up to all of you. So um, for me, I'll, I'll kick us off here on the production holding up. Um, and I'll just look, I'll get through a couple of things that maybe I don't love out of the way. Let's just, get that done first i i felt like you know look this episode is full of war movie cliches which sometimes i really do love like when you ride that fine line of doing an homage or something that is inspired by another story versus just doing a rehash you can really find good material that still resonates with the audience it's easy to rely too heavily on those tropes. And I, I did find myself kind of ticking off boxes here a few times. And I didn't find myself always getting drawn back into the story on multiple rewatches because I was ticking off those boxes in my head. Okay. That said, get, get that out of the way. <laughs> that said, the times that those story tropes work here, they really work. And I was reminded of the best of those types of TV shows and movies. I, yes, I, I thought of All Quiet on the Western Front. I thought of Ernest Hemingway. I thought of MASH. You know, I, I thought of all of these places where we've seen these kinds of stories play out in various pieces and then sort of reassembled here. I thought the twist by having Jake confront his own actions was very well done. And... um I thought it was even better to get to that moment at the end for his father to be open and accepting and really help Jake put things in perspective. That is such a huge payoff at the end of that episode. It's very impressive that only a couple of episodes ago in the ship, we had Cisco seriously contemplating the deaths of crew members in a way that we rarely see on Star Trek, much less on TV at all. And here we return to that theme where we make the reality of battle very harsh. And it's not just some diversionary inconvenience that magically turns people into heroes. Um, so uh, all all of that important stuff in, the, in this episode played out very well. So yeah, I may have my minor nitpicks. But I think that not only is this a strong episode overall, I feel like it fits in where it is in DS9 very mm -hmm. well, too. Um, how about you? I love this episode. I absolutely love this episode. And it took me several viewings to try and digest exactly which layers of this episode that I was trying to incorporate into my breakdown that we're talking to you about right now because there are so many different things that you can focus on. But the first of all, I just want to get this out of the way. Sarek Lofton is the heart of this episode. He is perfection Absolutely to his craft. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. In this episode. Now, I know that I loved him in The Visitor. I love him in most of his performances. That is where he's given a great deal of of emotion to play and strength to play against. But this time, though, a lot of it is um, are isolated scenes, scenes where you just have to watch him react and watch and try and try and see yourself standing where he's standing and seeing what he's seeing and feeling what he's feeling. And the way that he's able to 
to feel and to emote the, the, the guilt and the shame and the, the confusion and the anger and the depression all in the same episode is something that you rarely see, especially some, something that you rarely see in an actor that young mm-hmm. trying, to, trying to anchor your expectation of the emotional weight of this episode solely on sometimes just standing still yeah. and just it, yeah, absorbing. So that, that in of itself is probably one of the main reasons why I think this episode holds it for me. I agree with what you're saying with the, the tropist nature of... Uh, kind of like a wartime story. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, though, you're really seeing it from uh, a new point of view, a 24th century point of view, where I think our expectations are being subverted very strongly because, again, in Star Trek, rarely if ever, and probably not until now, Deep Space Nine, do you see the other side, the realities of certain things that are said like, oh, so-and-so colony got bombed. Or, you know, so-and-so colonists are trapped or the Klingons are attacking so-and-so. You know, those are just moments. Those are pieces of dialogue where you try and extrapolate what is happening. This is showing you what's happening. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's a very refreshing look on how this is affecting characters and how they are trying to, to move forward with what they've seen. And seeing this kind of takes you back to your assumptions of characters from before and the way that you're going to understand character actions later. Right. This is one of those moments. Right. Well, you know, let's look at messages. Um, A a week ago, we laughed about Quark quoting Edwin Starr. (laughs) Or what is it good for? (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Um, This this is an interesting episode because... there isn't specifically an anti-war message here, but in the same way that for MASH, the war was just a reality, where we're asked for a moment to step into the human lives that are affected. What, what is that toll on humanity when we're there? This episode goes deep by looking at the people who are affected and examines our ideas of heroism in war. So it's personal. And the greatest asset here is that this episode, the story is forgiving. It's forgiving of everyone involved uh, uh, for their emotions, their instincts, their faults. It's deeply human in that way. And look, I mean, we've told ourselves throughout history that heroes have certain traits and that those traits are on display during war. And what we less often tell ourselves is that war also destroys human psyches. And we might be a little misplaced in glorifying tales of courage. We also have to be aware of and sympathetic to the idea that people don't always respond the same way. And sometimes they have no choice. So look, since many of the messages are are just right there baked into the story, we might as well quote Jake Sisko here, or or quote Renee, however you want to look at it, in that line where he says uh, in his journal entry, the line between courage and cowardice is a lot thinner than most people believe. That's the strength here. This is making the story intensely and emotionally human. 
I, I think that is the, the absolute beauty of this episode. And as long as we're throwing out quotes again, because I know we quoted him on Mission Log before a long time ago, Yoda, who said, wars not make one great. So the meanings for me in this episode were very deep and very vast, and it was really hard to focus on all of them. But the one thing that I really wanted to pay particular attention on is, is why Jake felt like he needed to shame himself uh, based on the reactions of what he believed was true heroism. As, as the title and as the biblical passage state, you know, the randomization of, of how he reacted is his true reaction, the truth. So why was it so hard for him to accept that truth? What was or what are the factors that forced him to believe that any action that he took was an act of cowardice as opposed to an act of self-preservation? I mean, there are those tropes that in war say that, you know, your first responsibility is to come home alive. Mm -hmm. Your first responsibility is to make sure that you return to your loved ones. Yeah. You know, dying for a cause may be heroic, but it's still dying. Yeah. And it's not necessarily your cause. And where Jake was, it wasn't his cause. Right. And he was afraid of dying at the hands of Klingons in a war that he wasn't even conscripted to fight for. So, yes, the ensign that he, that he found the similarity with, he was trained and he was conditioned to fight. And, yes, that ensign felt shame. And I don't think he should either. It reminds me of that scene in Patton where Patton lambasted that one soldier for just sitting in the hospital bed, mm-hmm. you know, shocked because his nerves were broken. Yeah. And is, I don't want to believe that that's where we are in the 24th century. I don't uh, discount the fact that in this version of Starfleet, in this version of the 24th century in Deep Space Nine, that, that is actually the case, which makes this episode even the more powerful. And that brings me probably to my final thought. And this is one... This is one that's difficult for me to admit, but over the course of these last few episodes that I've seen, probably easier for me to accept. And that is, this is the side of Star Trek that I've never seen before, being exposed to Deep Space Nine. But maybe this is the side of Star Trek that I need to see. Hmm. And again, I am a dyed-in-the-wool, dyed-in-the-tunic Star Trek, (laughs) the original series fan, Mm -hmm. of where the the resolution of the episodes are tidier and the morality is a little bit more white and black, good versus evil. But rarely do we see the casualties of war in the way that they're portraying them in Deep Space Nine. And they are riding that fine line here between science fiction, fantasy, and reality. And I think that an episode like this actually makes me appreciate some of the points that I made and even resolving some of the points that I made in Hard Time about Chief O'Brien and what he chose to do, or almost did, Mm. because of what this ensign did to himself. Maybe that's something that the chief or this ensign will never forgive themselves for, whatever they did, the atrocities of war that they're suffering. And what I'd like to do is reference a quote that Kirk said to Anon Seven in A Taste of Armageddon, where he said, death destruction, disease, horror. That's what war is all about, Anon. That's what makes it a thing to be avoided. You've made it neat and painless. So neat and painless, you've had no reason to stop it, and you've had it for 500 years. Well, we've had that in Star Trek up until this point for possibly 30 years. So Star Trek has been neat and tidy when it comes to these subject matters. But maybe it doesn't need to be anymore. 
Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam! And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, The Assignment. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. What they really need is a hologram who can do doctor stuff in an emergency. Wouldn't that be something? Now, it'll never catch on. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.